So an imperfect football savior. How did I end up talking about football today? That's a good question. (laughs) You know, we had our humanist Seder last night, and of course today is Easter, celebrated by many of our family and friends and some of us at about 1 o'clock when we head to our in-laws' homes, perhaps. The Easter Bunny may have visited your home. It visited mine this morning. And usually this time of year, I'm talking about stories of liberation and renewal. I'm talking about... um, you know, how we bring all these different stories from different traditions and different times in our life together and what they might mean for us in our own lives and in our own tradition today. But instead, I'm talking about football. It was an auction platform. That's the answer. It's always the answer (laughs) when it's something a little bit strange. It was a few years back, actually. I think it was really like three years ago. Perry Sedman purchased one of the platforms that I offer sometimes up at the auction. We've had some great platforms out of that offer. You all have really good ideas about what I should talk about. And so um, Perry bought it and then later told me what the topic was and said, I'd really like you to talk about RG3. And I said, is that like Star Wars? (laughs) No, it's not, it turns out. Robert Griffin III, and we're going to hear a little bit more about Robert Griffin, but I thought, I actually thought at first Perry might be joking. (laughs) But then I got this in the mail. (laughs) Griffin. There we go. And then I started getting other things in the mail. He just, or he dropped them off on Sunday. And so I collected them. <clears throat> in my um, in my mailbox. This is yeah, 2013, I think 2012 here. So, <clears throat> so I started collecting these things, and I and I thought, well, at some point I'll actually have to do that platform. And here we are, three years later. <laughs> now, when I first got the assignment from Perry, I was, as you can imagine, really flattered because obviously what Perry was trying to indicate by asking me to speak about Robert Griffin III was that like Robert Griffin III, and remember this was a few years ago, like Robert Griffin III, you know, I was this amazing, wonderful star sent to save all of the world. RG3, a huge football star. He was, you know, the second NFL draft pick. Did I say that right? Is that accurate? I don't know. Come to save the Washington team. We're going to come back to that. But I want to have a timeout for just a moment to talk about the Washington team, which is how (laughs) you'll hear me refer to it. That's not the main topic of this platform, the name of the Washington team. But if we're talking about imperfection, (laughs) we cannot let it go by. Many of you are familiar with with the sort of really long conversation about the name of the Washington team and about whether it's appropriate, which it's not, whether it honors people's inherent worth, which it doesn't, whether it is sensitive and acceptable as we learn and try to be more respectful of all the cultures around us. It is not. 
The general arc over this month as we talk about imperfection is really kind of the acceptance of the imperfect, you know, recognizing and noticing our flawed selves and the flawed lives and flawed world we live in and coming to some understanding of them. It's about acceptance. But when I think about this particular part of the Washington team, I think instead about a quote from Angela Davis recent quote, I think. She said, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. That's how I feel about the name of the Washington team. And Perry, I think, would agree with me. He's written a number of letters to the editor and Collins and trying to get that name changed. And I think he has some alternatives. You can see him afterward. And he'll tell you what his plans are. So I wanted to make that side note and to articulate the way that imperfection is different than injustice. We don't want to confuse those two things and say that we're willing to live with injustice because, after all, the world is imperfect. We want to always make sure we remember the difference between the two. So back to RG3, obviously I got this assignment, I was really very flattered. Here's this huge star, he came to save the Washington team. Robert Griffin III was brought on as a quarterback, as you might know, the second NFL draft pick or something like that. But he was actually very shortly voted uh, offensive co-captain. Someone is going to come up later and tell me how I got literally every single thing I'm saying wrong, but... He was then voted offensive co-captain by his teammates, which is actually a huge honor. You're, you're selected as quarterback by the team decision makers, you know, the, the big honchos in charge, but your teammates elect the captains and co-captains. So here was this young guy. Uh, there was a big show of confidence in him. He seemed like a great guy. Obviously, Perry had chosen this topic for me because he saw all of the comparisons between me and the great RG3. <laughs> The rising star, the perfect one, who rose to the top and met everyone's expectations. So, if you follow football, you may be aware that it didn't work out exactly like that. Robert Griffin III was brought on um, to the Washington team right after college in 2012. He went to Baylor. He won the Heisman Trophy there. He was chosen with that second pick, um, which means that, as I understand it, that the team could have chosen almost anyone in the NFL draft pool. (laughs) Thank you. In the NFL. This is like a co-created platform. Okay? That's what this is. Could have chosen almost anyone in the NFL draft pool, and they chose him. He also, I discovered, graduated seventh in his class from high school and was class president. Uh, his senior year. He actually graduated a semester early because he finished his, his, all his credits early. So he's no slouch in the intelligence and leadership departments as well. And he shot to fame because of that pick with all these huge hopes riding on his shoulders. He was NFL Rookie of the Week multiple times, Rookie of the Month. He was the youngest NFL player to, and I quote, achieve a perfect passer rate. Rating. Does that mean he caught the football a lot? It does, right? No, he passed it a lot, and other people caught it. Thank you. Okay. It's very good. He was very good. That's the point. And then, as I understand it, a ball hit his knee 
in just the wrong way. Well, he had a major injury. He was removed from starter status, and then multiple injuries later, he actually was told at one point he would have to compete to get his quarterback position back again, although in the end he was given starter for that season. In 2013, hope still sprang anew. Mike Jones in the Washington Post wrote, the reset button has been hit. The surgically repaired knee feels great, and Robert Griffin III believes he is poised for a breakout. Now, from what I can tell from the articles and my obviously somewhat shaky understanding of football, part of the problem with Robert Griffin III and his injuries is that he insisted on playing in a way that allowed aggravation of those injuries, right? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And indeed, the Washington team has not shot to success with his leadership. Sally Jenkins wrote in the Washington Post just this past February, two head coaches in succession have had major problems with Griffin. Two good, proven, offensive minds that know how to teach young quarterbacks and get them to the postseason. Neither has been allowed to do his job. She's complaining about Dan Snyder here as well. But the result is that Griffin is three-quarters of the way toward being ruined. An oft-injured quarterback who just turned 25, who has gone 5-15 to as a starter over his past two seasons and has glaring weaknesses in both physical performance and temperament. So now I, I, I think probably Perry didn't mean to compare me <laughs> to RG3. I feel pretty sure about that. That was probably like an, like an anti, anti-comparison. I'm sure. Actually, the thing is, as the years went on and I didn't write this platform, it got more and more interesting to me. It's not that interesting, you know, to have an amazing football player that everybody thinks will be amazing go and be amazing and win. It's fun. I imagine, but it's not that interesting. Now, all of a sudden, we had a man who inspired headlines like, why we expect the impossible from our sports stars, and a whole book called RG3, The Promise, which includes a detail of a moment when Robert Griffin III was in a church service called by the Holy Spirit, bound by the responsibility of anointment. Talk about heavy responsibility on your shoulders. All of a sudden, thinking about Robert Griffin III and his work became much more human, much more possible, much more, as it turns out, like my own story. Some of you know I'm in my seventh year here, and my first few years had a particular Um, I I gave them a title after the first couple of years. I came here right, uh, this is my first settlement, so the first place that I have served as a called or appointed clergy person. And so I came here after seminary, where I was, of course, amazing and perfect. And and after an internship at another congregation, and um, you know interns, I was amazing and perfect there as well. Um, and, uh, And then I came here and I figured I would clearly, equally, be amazing and perfect. I titled those first couple of years when I thought about it or talked about it with mentors and friends, the years when I discovered the myth of my own exceptionalism. (laughs) They were the years when the amazing and perfect (laughs) 
started to fall away a little bit. I didn't have to just take classes on this anymore. I didn't even have to just be the intern where someone's backing you up all the time or telling you how to do it right, saving you from your worst mistakes. The myth of my own exceptionalism. And suddenly, Robert Griffin III felt more and more familiar to me. And so I began to think, as I thought about RG3, about why we expect the impossible from our sports stars, I I thought about why we expect the impossible from anyone. It is Easter today. I mentioned that you might be aware. So I'm going to talk about Jesus for like a really small amount of time. If you cannot take it, you are welcome. Look out the windows. We have this beautiful artwork now. You can look at the imperfection thing and think about how this part of the platform is really imperfect. So, so there's, you know, um, sort of a popular understanding, I think, sometimes of Christianity in America. Sometimes I call it the American Hallmark version of Christianity. It's the one on Hallmark cards or kind of, you know, embroidered on pillows. And that version of Christianity tells us that the Easter story and really the story of Jesus in general is the story of this perfect person. So perfect that, that he's God, right? So perfect and amazing. And so someone that we emulate and, and try to be. Everything planned out, every step, just as expected. For me... As I went through the Christian seminary that I attended and tried to understand and learn from and struggle with this story that I hadn't grown up with but that was so meaningful to so many people around me, for me, the part that was much more interesting than the perfect Jesus was the imperfect one, the doubting Jesus, the unsure and scared Jesus. It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before his betrayal and crucifixion. Jesus who wonders why the disciples can't just stay awake with him one night. It's Jesus who isn't sure how it's all going to turn out. Jesus on the cross who cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? You can hear the doubt, the betrayal the imperfection in the story there. And then the disciples themselves, oh my gosh, talk about imperfect. Some of you might know the story of Jesus and the disciples, right? These 12 people that he gathered around him. The entire point of the disciples' story is that they get nothing right the whole time. It's actually, it's written that way, right? It's a learning technique so that you're supposed to kind of learn along with the disciples, but they never get it right. They don't get it right at the beginning. They don't get it right at the end. The entire time Jesus is saying things like, you're missing the point. That's not quite it. And yet, they stay in the story with him. These totally imperfect, clueless, disciples. What speaks to me about the Jesus message, the Jesus story, what I came to finally after those years of struggling with it and wondering about it in seminary, 
is the welcoming of the imperfect, the foolish, the outcast. Jesus' followers, not just his disciples, but the people that were with him and people in the early Jesus movement before Christianity became the church of the empire, you know, when it was just sort of a bunch of really outcasts, rejects, this ragtag group of people who weren't allowed in, weren't allowed to be at the table. Until, as the story goes, and the story's complicated and many, many years old, but, but the way the story goes, until they were invited in to this new movement. So that, to me, is the part, I'm, we're done now, by the way, he, Jesus doesn't come back again, so you can come back, here we go. But that's the part about, about Jesus' story that's interesting to me. The same kind of thing that's interesting about Robert Griffin III, so imperfect, so flawed. Griffin himself is a deeply religious person. He often talks about how God guides guides his path and is the center of his life. But I actually think that within that framework, he might also be an ethical culturist. Now hear me out. In January of this year, he was quoted in the Washington Post in response to a question posed by an interviewer about whether it's hard to be so criticized. And here's what Griffin said. Yeah, it's difficult. Some people get real cynical because of the cynical nature of the area. He meant the Washington area, I'm sorry to say. And I've just tried not to do that and have been blessed by God to not have that mindset. I still try to look at each person when I walk up to them and say, that's a good person. Because if you think people are inherently bad or they're inherently trying to hurt you, it can hurt the way you view the world. We're going to return to that quote a little bit later and see how it might help us with perfection. Because here's the thing for most of us. We tend to be pretty good at figuring this out for other people, this imperfection thing. Many of us, I hope, imagine that others might not be perfect. And yet still, it's hard to imagine that we ourselves aren't perfect. To imagine, especially, I think, that our life doesn't follow quite the plan the arc we thought it would when we were the second NFL draft pick from the pool, for instance. It's hard, I think, when we look around and see that for whatever reason, something in our life isn't exactly like we thought it would be, or perhaps it's nothing like we thought it would be. Perhaps it's actually really pretty imperfect in that moment. And so, The question is what we do with that. I've heard a lot of platforms in my day. I've given a lot. I've heard a lot. And one of them sticks with me probably more than any other. I think about it regularly. It was a platform given by our own Barbara Searle, also a few years back. Some of you might have been there for it. I I have the image, I'm a visual person, and I have the image so seared in my mind. Barbara was talking about uh, the life she imagined she would have when she was a young 
high-achieving scientist. When she had entered into a PhD program and saw before her this whole arc of her life, and she made a graph on a flip chart of what she thought it was going to look like. And of course, I mean, what do we think when we're 20 that our life might look like? Shoop! Perfect, right? And then she talked about how her life had unfolded, which was different than she had expected. She decided science wasn't actually the field for her, and so she left it entirely. Am I getting it right, Barbara? She left it entirely. And she had another graph that showed how her life felt a few years after that, you know, when she was in her 30s, maybe. And she had realized that it wasn't going to be shoop, and instead it was sort of shoop, boom. I think we all have those moments, those fong moments in our life. And so she talked about what she ended up doing with her life. Barbara ended up being the ombudsman for the World Bank, so it kind of worked out okay. (laughs) All these things that she hadn't imagined at all in her early 20s when she expected this shoom life of a scientist. And so she had one final flip chart. Now, I think when Barbara gave this platform, it was just the year that she turned 80. And so she had this, she had the, her, her age along the bottom of the graph. And, um, and, and she showed finally what her life had been so far. And so there was a shoom and then a bong and then an up and down and up and down and up and down. And then I'll never forget this, there was a starburst at the end when you got to 80. <laughs> she didn't know what might come next, but it would be something amazing or not or different or wonderful. I remember thinking what a gift that platform was to the young adults who were in the hall that day, who were looking at our lives, and perhaps we were thinking they'd be like this, and it's helpful to have a reminder that it's this instead. Or maybe we were on the downswing and needed a reminder that we could go back up, that even a life that isn't perfect can have lots of beauty and starbursts at the end. There's an ethical culturist who's a member of the Philadelphia Ethical Society and future of ethical societies as well. He's a young adult. And he wrote a beautiful little poem, a haiku, made me think of our wabi-sabi story and the haiku in that story this morning. It's called Kintsu Koroi. Christian Hayden wrote these words. I tattooed the scars inside of me and out. I'm beautiful now. I tattooed the scars inside of me and out. I'm beautiful now. Kintsu Koroi, the title of that haiku, refers to the Japanese practice of filling the cracks in a bowl, if a bowl falls and breaks, filling the cracks with molten gold. Rather than trying to make the lines invisible, you highlight them. So that what you have is a vessel webbed with gold, made more beautiful because of the cracks it holds. Brene Brown, who's the author of The Gifts of Imperfection, Let Go of Who You Think You Are Supposed to Be and Embrace Who You Are. I always like book titles that tell you basically the synopsis of the book in the title. (laughs) 
Brene Brown talks about imperfection and vulnerability, about our ability to show those parts of ourselves being integral to our potential to connect with other people. That's why RG3 got so much more interesting to me when he got more human, when life didn't go the way he expected it might go. There was a comment during my internship. Remember that one I told you about? I was amazing and perfect at it. One of the criticisms that I got from someone was that I seemed too poised on Sunday morning. And at the time, because as you recall, I was perfect, I thought it was kind of a throwaway comment, like, what? That is ridiculous. I'm too poised. There is no such thing. But the longer I serve, the more I am aware that it's the times when I am able, or when I just am, (laughs) not poised, not perfect, when I am able to show that deeper part of who I am, that I'm able to connect more deeply. So good news for all of us in that connection battle. (laughs) I don't know that any of us are perfect. How do we embrace this for ourselves? What does it have to do with our own religious and ethical tradition? We're going to come back right at the very end here to that quote of Griffin's. The one that I said made it clear he was also an ethical culturist. Do you remember? Here's how it went. He was talking about criticism. And he said, yeah, it's difficult. Some people get real cynical because of the cynical nature of the area. And I've just tried not to do that and have been blessed by God to not have that mindset. I still try to look at each person when I walk up to them and say, that's a good person. Because if you think people are inherently bad or they're inherently trying to hurt you, it can hurt the way you view the world. I had a great conversation recently with someone about inherent worth and judgment, about how it is that you're able to remember to believe in inherent worth when people make choices that you feel objectively just aren't great ones, are really deeply imperfect (laughs) choices. And I said, well, that's the trick. You don't have to believe in inherent worth. You attribute it. That's what we talk about in ethical culture, that we attribute or affirm the inherent worth of someone else, even when we don't see it at all. And I think that's exactly what Griffin is talking about in that quote. He says, I still try to look at each person when I walk up to them and say, that's a good person. He doesn't say they appear to be good people to me. They act like good people. They've proven to me that they're good people. He says, I walk up to them and I just say, that's a good person. He's attributing worth and goodness to each person that he sees. The mark, perhaps, of a real hero far beyond your passing rate. I think this is where imperfection really gets us closer to each other. When we have the ability to see that none of us are perfect, not our heroes, not ourselves, none of us have the life arc that we thought we might, and that all of us are more beautiful because of the cracks 
that we have filled with gold.